are continuing our summer series, and we're calling it Heroes of Faith, and it is uh, my privilege to be able to share with you this weekend, and every time I'm going to be able to share with you, I, my goal is to be able to walk through segments of the life of David. He has been a constant source of inspiration to me, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to be encouraged as well, and what we're going to do here together in our time is we're going to explore a friendship David had. He was given a tremendous gift through the friend uh, of Jonathan, the friendship he had with Jonathan. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at four different incidents in where Jonathan actually shows up in remarkable fashion. Because it is, it is easily not an exaggeration to say that David would not have survived his year, early years if it wasn't for the intervention of his faithful friend. And so I'd like us to explore these incidents that demonstrate something of Jonathan's character, his friendship. And, and then I'm hoping that afterwards we'll be able to glean some things that perhaps God may want to impress on us as we see this model of a friendship together. And so if you open up your handout, we'll just step into uh, the moment they first meet. And we're told in Samuel 18, 1-4, we'll just walk through this together. We're told that after David finished talking with Saul on the other side of slaying Goliath, by the way, that he met Jonathan, the king's son, the prince of Israel. And we're told that there was an immediate bond between them. They had an affinity. They felt a sense of kinship between them. For Jonathan loved David. Verse 2, we're told that from that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. And Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. This friendship that God would provide in David's life begins by an interaction on the other side of Jonathan witnessing one of the most remarkable events in Israel's history. A shepherd boy doing what an entire army could not, overcoming the Philistine champion, Goliath. And perhaps inspired or encouraged by his valor and courage, or maybe even somewhat feeling an affinity towards his faith, faith David boldly declared for the entire valley to hear before slinging his stone. Jonathan approaches him and they become quick friends. They, they both, we're told they have a kinship together. They almost sense like their lives are meant to be intertwined somehow. And so they make an oath. We're not told the details of the oath, but it would be something of a, of a loyalty oath. And whatever happens, we will protect each other. We will watch out for each other. We will strengthen each other. And Jonathan, being the prince of Israel, does something else. We're told in verse 4 that Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David. It is to say he, he gives him the royal identifier. And he embraces him. And then he gives him his bow. And he gives him his sword. He says, you are now one of us. You're no longer a shepherd, which is what you're wearing, the clothing of a shepherd. No, you are now a military man, but not just a military man. You are now a member. of. You are now as if you are family. That is what this means, David. It's quite a beginning to their friendship. His friendship would quickly be tested because it would be soon after this event that Saul's jealousy towards David and his feeling of insecurity would lead Saul to call his own court into action to eliminate David. 
And this moment would end up testing whether or not Jonathan meant everything he just did. And we get to see how Jonathan would show up. We're told in Samuel 19, 1-7, we'll just walk through this. We're told that Saul now urged his servants and his son Jonathan to assassinate David. But Jonathan, because of his strong affection for David, told him what his father was planning. Tomorrow morning, he warned him, you must find a hiding place out in the fields. I'll, I'll ask my father to go out there with me and I'll talk to him about you. And then I'll let you know everything. I'll tell you everything I can find out. It would be in the midst of Saul's unraveling and his insecurity, paranoia, that would lead Saul to publicly say to everyone, look, you have one assignment, and that assignment is to remove David completely. Jonathan couldn't help but speak up. He may not speak up in front of everyone knowing what's happening. He goes to his friend David and he says, listen, you're, you're actually in danger right now. Something else is going on outside of your knowledge. So you got, you got to go out into the field. But you know what? You're in danger, but I will take care of this. Don't worry. Almost as if to say, I, I remember the oath we made. And he does. He intervenes on behalf of his friend. And look at how he does this. Jonathan shows his intelligence in his approach. Because we're told in verse 4 that the next morning, Jonathan spoke with his father about David, saying many good things about him. The king must not sin against his servant David, Jonathan said. He's, done, he's never done anything to harm you. He has always helped you in any way he could. Verse 5, have you forgotten about the time he risked his life to kill the Philistine giant and how the Lord brought a great victory to all Israel as a result? I mean, you were certainly happy about it then. Why should you murder an innocent man like David? There's no reason for it at all. Jonathan, respecting his father, refers to him in a certain way. You can see it. He doesn't, respect, he, doesn't, he doesn't refer to him in the familial term as his father. He actually refers to him as king. And why does he do this? He does this because it would lead us to understand that Saul carried himself in such a way that his office was paramount. His power was unrivaled and his, the reverence all needed to approach him with was one of deep humility. And so you get the sense that Jonathan, in this desire to intervene on behalf of his friend, he ends up stepping into the conversation. He says, my king, I, I want to talk to you about your servant, your servant, David. And then look what he does. He appeals to him rationally, his more pragmatic side. Because what does he say? He says, he's never done anything to harm you. He's always helped you in any way you could. In other words, he's, he's trying to tell him, my king, listen, on a purely bottom line level, he's of benefit to you. He is of benefit to you. Look at everything he has done for you. Look at the way he strengthened you. Look at the way he has not done anything that has been harmful, harmful in any way. On just on a purely like, what do you get out of this? You get much out of this. Rationally, this doesn't make sense. And then, and then hoping that that would provoke him, maybe uh, stir him or pull him out of this. He, he says, well, maybe if not, he pivots. And he appeals to his faith. 
Because he reminds him, he says, listen, have you forgotten about the time? Verse 5, he risked his life to kill a Philistine. Remember? Remember how the Lord brought about a great victory? Do you remember how we got to see this together? We all agreed, this is God. You remember that? Do you remember how we all affirmed, this is bigger than David, this is bigger than us. God has just done something in our midst. I appeal to you, oh my king. Based on this faith we share, God has done this. Don't, don't do this. Don't remove him. Don't kill him. And if that wouldn't work, Jonathan wisely goes to a third angle. Because what does he do? He appeals to his moral compass. And he says, why should you murder an innocent man like David? There is no reason at all. In other words, it is just wrong. It is immoral. He is an innocent man. He has not done anything to provoke this. He hasn't done anything. He doesn't deserve it. It is unjust. Don't do it. Don't do it, please, my king. And perhaps it would be the more rational, pragmatic way in which Saul evaluated things. Or maybe it was a faith he once shared with Jonathan. Jonathan, not knowing he had long ruptured his relationship with God. Or perhaps it would be more on a purely moral, ethical standpoint that he would relent. And e even in the midst of this, through, through, through the conversation, something happens. The, although we know Saul is filled with insecurity and and filled with jealousy and paranoia and a degree of murder inside of him, something happens. Jonathan's words actually penetrate through the fog. And it would seem they open up a glimmer of light. And they worked. Jonathan effectively intervened because we're told in verse 6 that so Saul listened to Jonathan and he vowed, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be killed. You you've convinced me, Jonathan. I see your rationale. Afterward, Jonathan called David and told him what had happened. And then he brought David to Saul. And David served in the court as before. This, this, can we hear this? It is itself a picture of what a friend does, is it not? Because Jonathan, what does he do? He uses his position, his authority, and his influence to vouch for another he doesn't use it for any selfish motive. You know what he uses it for? For the one who is vulnerable, the one who is exposed, the one who has no defense, the one who is marginalized, the one who is outcast. He says, no, 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 I will intervene on your behalf. I will stand in the gap. I will defend you. And he does it. Which is a remarkable gift David has been given through Jonathan. And yet the sad reality is that it would be shortly after this that Saul would see David's continual success in the battlefield and he would see continual fame start to accrue and he would then start to implement a strategic plot to rid himself of David. He would, he would turn back on the word he had given his son. David would become aware of this. David, knowing he had no one else in the land except his friend, he would turn to Jonathan. This is good for us to know. Because he would turn to Jonathan and he would appeal to him, well, I don't know what I did to your father. I have no idea. Why is he hunting me like an animal? Why is this happening? And Jonathan, after hearing him out, says, what can I do for you? And they come up with a plan. And the plan was to sound out their father. And they realized, you know what? There's a festival right now. If I am missing, then if, how he reacts will tell us something. If he's harsh, he means to kill me. If he's kind and he's not bothered by it, then it's just in my head, Jonathan. It's okay. I'll come back. They agree. But in the midst of this, in the midst of David 
sharing this fear with Jonathan, we see something else happen. We see now a third example of the kind of friend Jonathan was. Why? Because it's almost as if Jonathan sees the quivering nature of David's internal being, the knees shaking, the fear that has filled him head to toe, the anxiety that is palpitating within him. And something happens. Jonathan ends up speaking words, words truly that are sincere. And if you could hear it, they are the friendliest words one could speak. And I asked him to put this up there, and this is just, we'll just, if you could just hear this and see this together, we're told in 1 Samuel 20, and this is a paraphrased version. And he says to him, come outside, said Jonathan. And so he goes, he says, let's go, let's go to the field. And when the two of them were out in the field, Jonathan said, as God, the God of Israel, is my witness, by this time tomorrow, I'll get it out of my father how he feels about you. I will figure this out, David. And then I'll let you know what I learned. And if, listen, may God do his worst to me if I let you down. Think about it. David, you're not alone. I will figure this out. I'll use everything I can on your behalf. I'll stand up for you. And I'll figure out the information. I'll come back and give you the information. And listen, if I don't, be assured of this. I ask God to, to make sure that his worst would be done to me. And yet, knowing that perhaps that, that is not something that is enough for David, realizing that that in itself may not assure David yet, he leans in a little further and he says, look, if my father still intends to kill you, I'll tell you and get you out of here in one piece. I will take personal responsibility for you my brother, my friend. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. And then Jonathan taps into probably the most sacred place John, David could possibly need a friend in. Because he leans into the place where God has whispered. And he says to him in the next, and we'll just read this. He says, and God be, be with you as he's been with my father. If I make it through this alive, continue to be my covenant friend. Be as loyal to me as I have been to you. Will you do that? Don't forget me. And if I die, then keep this friendship with my family forever. Will you show this loyalty and kindness to my descendants forever? And then he says something that is almost like an arrow piercing through the current situation, moving into David's future. And he says, look, and when God finally rids the earth of David's enemies, stay loyal to Jonathan. Would you do this? Which is a remarkable word. You know why it is? Because David is nothing near his strength or his power or anything near what he would one day achieve. But Jonathan ends up saying to David in his own way, look, we have sensed God doing something in your life. And I am telling you that this circumstance does not negate that God is actually doing something in your life. He is. It may not look like it now, but when he completes what he has started in your life, David, I want you to know this. I want you to remember this. Don't forget me, okay? Don't forget me. Because one day, what he promised for you, it will be completed. Then he repeated his pledge of love and friendship for David, for he loved David more than his own soul. This the epitome of selfless, brotherly, 
love. It's remarkable. It's a declaration both rare and ideal, and if we could hear it, it is something, uh, if we were honest with ourselves, boy, it is something we all long for, is it not? To have a friend, be able to strengthen us in our time of weakness, be able to speak hope into us, be able to remind us that God is actually still doing something in our lives, even though our circumstances speak nothing of that. It is, it's inspiring. And if it inspires us, it inspired nothing but anger and rage out of King Saul. The minute he found out, they were actually working together. And Jonathan was defending David, which leads us into the final piece that shows truly what a friend looks like through Jonathan. Because upon finding this out, what Saul ends up doing, he finds out their, their plan, and he discovers that Jonathan is defending him. He ends up cursing his son with, if you could hear it this way, the highest, the, the, the bitterest word one could deliver to another in the ancient Near East. Words meant to insult and degrade. Words meant to offend. Words that are shocking to even read. You could read them for yourself in verse 30. But once... Saul ends up cursing his son. He says in 31, he says, as long as that son of Jesse is alive, you'll never be king. You don't understand. Now go and get him so I can kill him. Jonathan, Jonathan, listen. You don't get it, do you? It, it, it reveals Saul's heart. And what reveals Saul's heart? Saul's heart. He, go, he says, what does he do? He says, listen, listen, as long as David is breathing, your future is in danger. Do you get it? You don't get it, do you? And as long as he gets this much fame and popularity, and as much as he continues to succeed, the harder it will be for you to ever have the throne. It's time for you, Jonathan, to start thinking about yourself, not others. It's time for you to secure your own future. Now go get them, and we'll settle this now. I'm through with the discussion. Which reveals... Saul's heart. But these words, filled with nothing but selfish ambition, actually end up contrasting the very nature of Jonathan's heart because nothing in Jonathan was as interested in, in, in securing for himself, coercing for himself a future. Everything in him was interested in defending the friend God had given him. It is, if, if we could hear it, it is quite a moment. Jonathan ends up stepping into it and he says, listen, no, no, almost as if to say, that is not my concern. Verse 32, he says, why should he be put to death? It doesn't make sense. I, I understand what you're saying, but honestly, this is not the way to do it. He's an innocent man. Jonathan asks his father, what has he done? He's done nothing. Loyal to the end, Jonathan stands up for his friend as best as he can. And we're told that then Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, intending to kill him. By the way, the very first way, he tried to eliminate David. So at last, Jonathan realized that his father was really determined to kill David. This is not going to change. This is the way it's going to be. In verse 34, we're told that Jonathan left the table in fierce anger and refused to eat on that second day of the festival, for he was crushed by his father's shameful behavior toward David. The, these are words that are difficult to read there. On one hand, they are somewhat embarrassing to see the small man that occupied the throne 
of Israel. And on the other hand, they end up elevating the degree of loyalty and friendship Jonathan had vowed to his brother, to his friend. He makes his way out to the field. And we know that he ends up moving towards where David is at. And we know that probably some of the hardest words he can utter, he tells David, your suspicions are accurate. It's no longer safe for you here. You got to go. You have to go. I can't protect you anymore. These two warriors moved with frustration and love Bitterness end up weeping, strengthening each other. And knowing perhaps what Jonathan was sending his friend into, ends up giving him a word meant to strengthen him along the way, a path, by the way, that would lead to the deepest valley in, John, in David's early life. A valley of discouragement and disillusionment, a valley of struggle and pain, a valley that would preempt David's eventual ascent to the throne God had promised him. But before all of that happens, Jonathan looks at David and he says in verse 42 that at last Jonathan said to David, go in peace for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. Remember this, we we have said this, that God is between you and I. The Lord is witness of a bond between us and our children forever. God is in this friendship. This is unique. And remember that the Lord be between you and us. And I, forever, the older version says. And David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. And in essence, that encompasses the entirety of this friendship. A friendship that ended up rescuing and saving and protecting David's life when he was most vulnerable. It would be years later that David actually would end up stepping into his position as king. That he would remember the significant impact his friend had on his life. Not forgetting the gift he was given, he ends up trying to reciprocate it. Jonathan had passed away by that point. And so he finds out if there are any descendants of Jonathan, ends up finding out there's a disabled son. He brings his son into the royal courts. And for the rest of his son's life, Jonathan's son, he treats him with love and kindness and grace, reciprocating the very oath he had received. It is a friendship that highlights what it all could be. And honestly, the truth is, we look at this, and we might even think to ourselves, boy, that is amazing, but it is so ideal. So maybe perhaps, if we could put it this way, unrealistic, unattainable, so rare. And we might be accurate in saying that. And yet, be that as it may, I think it provides us with something of a model for us to consider for our own lives, our own relational lives, and how God may want to interact there with us. It provides us with a couple things, and I just want to put this on the board. Firstly, it reminds us, this this friendship that they shared reminds us that God-centered, it highlights, God-centered friendships can be as significant, to hear this, as significant a part of our faith journey as prayer, worshiping in a house that proclaims His goodness, and reading His scripture. That Our friendships that are centered around God end up giving us the ability, if you could hear it this way, we discover through this type of friendship that the ordinary experiences of life 
they are able to be transformed into something sacred. Sacred. Because when God is in the center, you know what happens in a friendship. And when you start to share with others and you start to cultivate this type of dynamic, you start to receive and give certain things. One, you start to confirm something of what God is saying in someone else's life. When you start to involve yourself and roll up your sleeves and really engage life with someone else and you start to share this faith dynamic, you start to get a sense of what God is actually saying. You know what? Yes, I agree with that. I actually do think God is saying that to you. And can you hear this? The power of a confirming word through the lips of another. It is able to give us strength. It is able to affirm something because we don't only just hear a confirming word. We also hear affirming word into pursuing what God may ask us to pursue. It's there. And we may receive the courage and the strength we lack. Engaging and risking for something we sense God is calling us to. We might share with a friend, you know what, I really think, I, I don't know, I don't want to say it because it's almost weird saying, but I almost feel like the Lord wants me to do this. And it's through the friend that we invite into our lives that we are able to hear the encouraging word. Yes, you know what, I agree. I, it does sound like that's something God would want you to do. Go for it. Do it. Step into it. I will root you on. I'll be with you. I'll pray with you. Because if it does that, it also, you know what else it does? Is along the way, it actually renews our commitment not to quit. How many ventures, listen, listen, how many ventures do we actually begin? That, how many wonderful things do we begin? Aspirations we jump into. How many things do we say courageously, I will start it? And along the way, that in itself is not outside the ordinary. You know what's unordinary? What's unusual? Is to persevere and remain committed without a friend rooting us on along the way. It is so significant what God longs to give us through the gift of a God-centered friendship. This is something I know firsthand. I remember when I first started entering this community and I started trying truly to engage faith. It was beyond being dragged here and it was moving into me saying, okay, I will be here present. And I start to try to respond to what I sense God saying into my life. I remember being intensely private and my faith was intensely private. I, it was just like, I don't want, okay, I will show up, but I just want it, you and me, God. You and me. I'll read my word, I'll pray, but no one, it's like a brick wall. No one in, no one in. Only you, you get a little key. And I remember actually having some joy in that, but there came to a point where that actually started hitting roadblocks. I wasn't able to feel any traction with God. I was starting to feel frustrated. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. I, I felt a little bit, I don't know. I, I can't really describe it. It's just, I was wondering, Lord, where are you? I don't understand this. And it was right around that time that somebody stepped into my path after a service and said, hey, listen, hey, a group of guys get together once a week and we, we pray together at a house and wondering if you would like to join us. And I said, oh, um, no thanks. <laughs> and I said, well, great. We'll see you Thursday night at seven o'clock. <laughs> Gave me the address, handed it to me, and the person who was giving this to me, I respected. And so I was like, oh man, I can't just not show up. I actually care about what you think. And so I showed up. And I, to be honest with you, I showed up and it was like the wall traveled with me. 
Everyone else can talk, not me. You want, you want, no, I don't pray out loud. <laughs> no, that's boundary, come on. And I remember over time, something actually started happening. God started meeting me there. Now, I'll tell you what, I had friends. We had, we had hobbies in common. We had sports in common. We had my, our culture in common, ethnicity in common. We had all these different types. I never had friends where, where God was the center. And I actually ended up digging up a photograph. This is years ago, over 10, 13 years ago. Way before I knew how to smile. I remember stepping in, and you could hear, we were so radically different from one another. We really didn't have much in common. We all had different paths behind us. We all had different futures ahead of us. We were all in different seasons of life. We weren't even in the same age group, really. And it's like, boy, I don't know if I would have chosen these people as my friends. I don't know if they would have chosen me, but over time, we ended up praying together. We would, we would share life a little bit at a time, take risk, and would we follow up with each other. We start to hear God for each other. You know what? I remember you saying that. I think actually God is doing that in your life. Maybe you should respond. How should I respond? Maybe you should respond this way. I'll pray for you. Why don't you call me after it happens? Great. And over time, a deep bond started to form something powerful started to happen. Traction began to develop in my own life. And for that season, I started to hear God, not through just his word or through my own prayer life, but if you could hear this, through the lips of another, through the affirmation of another, who were able to say, yes, I actually believe that is, your, that is in your path. Do it. Go for it. Take the risk. We're with you. That is the gift of a community of faith. Some of us need to take the risk beyond just, and I don't mean this in any way, I mean this as humbly as I can, beyond receiving on a weekend service and stepping out and taking the risk of involving ourselves in the relationships and the dynamics of other people in our lives. And perhaps there we get to discover the beautiful gift of a God-centered friendship. And how strengthening it can be to us. Because, see, if it doesn't, if it highlights that, it also reminds us that really, at the end of the day, in God's ways, relational life is best expressed when we take our focus off of what we can get and instead focus on what God has given us. This, this, this is the very thing King Saul could not understand. He was consumed with everything he could get. He was, his soul at the end of the day was greedy. It was that's what it was. And it was the exact opposite of Jonathan. Jonathan didn't feel any threat by David. He didn't feel any sense of envy or jealousy. He felt nothing but joy for his friend who was getting this acclamation, this, this, this fame, this elevation. Why? Because what did he see? What paradigm did Jonathan have? What did he say to King Saul? What did he say to David? God is doing this. The Lord is doing this. The Lord has given us this. The Lord has put you on that throne, he would say to his father. The Lord gave us the victory in the valley through David. This is bigger than us. This is bigger than my own little kingdom I might have one day. 
God is doing this. God has brought him into our lives. Shouldn't we treat it like a sacred entrustment? You know what happens when we start to focus on what God has given us? What happens is we become grateful. And we start thanking him for the people in our lives. And we start thanking him for the different people. Look, not just the people that bring us joy and refreshment, not just the people that we we look forward to when they come our way, but also, and I must say this, also the people that may rub us the wrong way, that may irritate us, may bother us, may cause us, if you can hear it this way, to grow in grace, to grow in patience, to grow in the ability to demonstrate that we give forgiveness, not because they deserve it, but because we have been given forgiveness. It's there. It's in relationships that we discover the inverted nature of God's kingdom. When we strive to give and we start to give out of what God has given, we sow the seeds of true friendship. But when we evaluate things the way our culture does, which is on a cost-benefit scale, and we start to lay, what am I getting out of this, really? And we start to be consumed with our energy versus our return on investment. Well, you know what happens? Is that actually ends up sowing the seeds that end up corroding and disintegrating the potential friendships God may be trying to give us all around. This is what Jonathan demonstrates. As great as Jonathan was, Jonathan was really a foreshadow. He was a, an arrow pointing towards someone. Because Jonathan is a foreshadow of the greatest friend we will have in Jesus. He was remarkable, no doubt about it. To have a friend like Jonathan is to have a great treasure. But at the end of the day, he was simply pointing in the direction of the one who would come as the greatest friend humanity could possibly ask for. I was reading this book. It's called Leap Over a Wall. It's by a man named Eugene Peterson. He's a respected author and pastor. He wrote a section on friendship, I think captures something of what we're discussing. I'd like us to just hear it here together. We're told, he says, each of us has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who, the moment they set eyes on us, begin calculating what we use, what what use we can be to them, what they can get out of us. We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us, make a snap judgment, and then slot us into a category so they won't have to deal with us as persons. They treat us as something less than we are. And if we're in constant association with them, we become less. And then, someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use, is leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us, is secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attack our strengths, recognizes our inner life, and understands the difficulty of living out our inner convictions, who confirms what's deepest within us. That someone is a friend. 
And that not only accurately portrays what Jonathan was to David, if you could hear this, it portrays and it defines everything Jesus longs to be to you and I. Because Jesus, he doesn't come as one looking to exploit us or take from us. He doesn't come to us looking to use us. He doesn't come to us looking to just display our weaknesses for everyone to see. He doesn't feel threatened by us, therefore leading to him attacking our strengths. No, he does none of that. You know what he does? He approaches us in such a way he, above all anyone else, understands truly the struggle we currently are in, the unique struggle all of us are in. He identifies the deepest longings in our soul, and he does more than that. He steps into our human experience, joins the journey, and does everything we could never do. Ends up giving his own life on the cross for you and I. His strength defending us. His robe of royalty giving us a new identity of acceptance. He is the one who on the other side of the cross, you know what he does? He offers us the beautiful gift of new life through the hand of friendship. Of friendship. It's on the eve of him doing this. He spoke to his disciples and he wanted them to understand something. He saw them uniquely. And I asked him to put this up there in John 15, 13. His greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus calls anyone who calls on his name his friend. May we receive his friendship. May we be strengthened by it. May in our time of insecurity, our time of vulnerability and fear, may we hear his voice affirming what God is doing in our lives. When we feel exposed, may we hear him reminding us, look, I'm with you. I will help you. I will defend you. I will protect you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I take complete responsibility for you. May we start to recognize the gift God has given us through the people around us. And may we cultivate God-centered friendships that give him the ability to speak to us, not just through his word, but through the lips of another. And perhaps one day in our lives, we will see a David around us. And like Jonathan, we will intervene. And we will step into that place, that heroic place of what a true friend is. May that be the case. In a moment, we're going to share in a closing song meant to undergird everything we've discussed. We're going to have our time of giving and close out with this. So I'd like to just pray, ask for his blessing over this word, and then we'll move into this together. Lord, we thank you. I thank you, God, firstly, that you you, the king who's sitting on the throne. You offer us your embrace. You call us beloved. You call us your children. You call us your friend. 
I pray, God, that you would help us receive your friendship in our lives. I pray that you would help us put ourselves in positions to develop friendships with each other. And I ask, God, that you would build within us the heart of Jonathan, the heart of one who is able to step up, not concerned with ourselves, but with those, the well-being of those around us. May you make us into a great reflection of your friendship. I pray that our community, our family, our friends, our work environments would be blessed because of your friendship in us and through us. We ask for this, God. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.